All right, book of 2 Timothy uh, this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Are you familiar with the idea of jumping on the bandwagon? Anybody else? I mean, you guys, that's a familiar phrase, right? This is what happens when people are attracted to a cause or a team or a person who is popular or successful. And we see this all the time with sports franchises, right? Whoever wins the Super Bowl, all of a sudden, there's jerseys are everywhere and, uh, you know, People coming out of the woodwork to be fans of that team who've never watched a football game in their life, but all of a sudden they're fans because that was the winning team. They're on the bandwagon. I think we saw this a lot. I remember seeing this a lot back in 2016 when Donald Trump surprisingly won the Republican primary and then, more surprisingly, won the presidency. Up until that point, there were a lot of people who were very vocally opposed to him, uh, even including people on the political right, and all of a sudden, they became his most loyal supporters. Not, not all of them, right? But quite a few of them did. I think we could consider that jumping on the bandwagon. But what we all know about the bandwagon is that it's just as easy to jump off as it is to jump on, right? Usually, the moment that the cause becomes unpopular... People are jumping off the bandwagon like rats trying to escape a sinking ship. Now, I'm not trying to compare people to rats this morning, so don't misunderstand my intention here, okay? But there's something about human nature that makes us fickle, uh, erratic, subject to unexpected change. This is why, if you look at the ministry and life of Jesus, Jesus began to do miracles and crowds began to flock to him and follow him. <clears throat> and when they did, the Bible tells us that he did not commit himself to the crowds. John says it this way, he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus understood the fickleness of crowds, the fickleness of the bandwagon. He warned his disciples. Remember the, the parable of the soils? Sometimes we call it the parable of the sower, but it's really about the soils. The seed is sown and there's different types of soil. Remember that? Well, Jesus warned about that there are some people who would hear the word of God and would receive it gladly initially. But then tribulation or persecution would come or else the cares of the world, and Jesus said the deceitfulness of riches would enter in, and they would fall away. Their lives would become unfruitful. <clears throat> the word of God would become unfruitful in their life. And so it shouldn't surprise us that some people who profess to know and love Jesus Christ will be ashamed of the gospel. And ashamed of those who take a stand courageously on the truth and then suffer for it. I think it's an important question for us to consider as we think about this this morning. What's the difference between a true believer and someone who's just jumped on the bandwagon? 
What's the difference between a, two, a true fan of that sports team and somebody who's just jumped on the bandwagon when they happen to win the World Series? I think, no, I won't, I won't go there. I was going to say something about the Cubs, but I won't. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I'll restrain myself. <laughs> it's okay. Um, that's what I was going to say. But anyways, all right. Um, but we know the answer, right? We know the difference between a true fan and a bandwagon jumper. Because all you have to do is look what happens when the cause loses popularity or when it becomes unsuccessful. Look what they do when things get tough, when no one is cheering them on, when that's no longer the trend. That's when we can tell the difference between the true believer and the bandwagon jumper. Paul had experienced this himself, the apostle. We're going to see that this morning in the text that we're going to read. Remember, he's writing this letter near the end of his life. He's in prison. He's awaiting execution at the order of the emperor Nero. And he is writing what is going to be his final message to Timothy, this man whom he loves dearly. A Timothy is a true believer. And because of that, Paul has told him, Timothy, I don't want you to be ashamed of the gospel, and I don't want you to be ashamed of me because I'm in prison. But rather, Paul said, join me in suffering for the cause of Christ. Trust your life your health, your freedom, and your ministry to the Lord. He can keep it safe. And that's really the, 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 the kind of to sum up verses 1 through 12 that we looked at last week. But unfortunately, not all those who name the name of Christ will stand the test of time. Look with me there, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. Paul says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the word of God that you have given to us. And thank you for these precious truths and this letter that Paul wrote, this very tender letter that he wrote to his, his uh, beloved son in the faith, Timothy. And Father, I thank you that you have preserved this word for us that we might today read these important words, be instructed by them, be encouraged by them. Father, I pray that you would minister to our hearts today as we come under the, the, the Word of God. Help me as I speak to be your instrument. 
simply a useful tool in your hand to accomplish your work today. And I pray that you would make each one of us this morning, Lord, in our hearts, humble us, cause us to submit to the Word of God, to the truth, that our lives might begin to reflect that more accurately in the days ahead. Help us to be willing to do what you say, to believe what you, what you teach, and be faithful to it. And I pray that you would do this work in us today, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, the word faithfulness does not appear in this passage. But it seems to me, as I read these verses, that that idea of faithfulness is the main theme that's in Paul's mind here in this passage. The first thing that he does is he gives Timothy a couple of big picture commands. And then, in doing that, he's he's trying to define what faithfulness is in the life of a Christian. right? As opposed to being a bandwagon jumper. Somebody who's faithful. And he's going to define that. He's going to follow that up then with a couple of examples good and bad, to illustrate, to demonstrate what faithfulness looks like in real life. And then when we get to the first couple of verses of chapter 2, I think what Paul is going to do is very practical here because he's going to take this idea of faithfulness and he's going to show us what this looks like in very practical terms. How is faithfulness going to be discharged in passing on the ministry of the gospel from one generation to the next? And so there's really three kind of uh, 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 main kind of ideas or themes in this, all related to that idea of faithfulness, and we're going to look at this morning. So the first thing we have in verses 13 and 14 is what I call faithfulness defined. And there's two commands here, one command in verse 13 and another one in verse 14. These are imperatives, right? Commands, instructions of things to to do. These aren't... um, opinions. They're not nice ideas. They are commands, instructions that Paul gives to Timothy. Notice what they are. Hold fast and guard or keep is the way it's translated in the New King James in verse 14. Timothy is to hold fast to the pattern of sound words that Paul has taught him. That's what he says here. Think about the relationship between Paul and Timothy. Timothy had known Paul for years at this point. Their their relationship goes back um, at this point probably uh, at least a decade, maybe two decades at this point. Their relationship goes back quite a ways. They've been together for quite a while. Timothy has, has observed Paul's life and he has listened to his teaching. Timothy has served alongside of Paul. They've served in the same church before. They've they've been involved in the same ministry. They've been on missions projects together and planted churches and preached and, and, and done all sorts of ministry together. So we I think it's not an accident here. We we can see that when Paul says, Timothy, there is a pattern that has been established. This is something Timothy has observed. There is a pattern, a model that Paul has has given to Timothy. 
an outline for him to trace, if you will, so that his own life reflects allegiance to the truth of the gospel. He can look at what Paul has said and what Paul has done, and he can see in that a pattern to follow. Paul's example has to do with two things here. He says that this pattern is to be followed or held fast in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Now, these two terms, faith and love, are important because back in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul said that the goal of his teaching was, quote, love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. So back in 1 Timothy, Paul said, this is the end, this is the goal, this is the purpose of my teaching, so that when I teach this truth, you will respond in faith, you will respond with love and a good conscience. That's the end goal of the teaching. And now Paul says to Timothy, this is exactly how you're supposed to follow the example that I've set for you. I, we should see in your life the evidence, the very things that I've targeted, this faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. There's an example to follow. And the example isn't just about the truth. Though he does talk here about sound words, right? The pattern of sound words. So there's an idea here that there is a truth that Timothy is to follow and his life should reflect this truth. But sometimes being committed to the truth and fighting for the truth can lose sight of these principles of faith and love. And Paul says this is a whole package deal, right? It's not, Timothy, get out your gospel bazooka and blow the people away that disagree with you. Go like full nuclear on them because they don't agree with your theology. That's not what Paul says here. He says, Timothy, you need to stay true to the faith with a spirit of love and dependence on God. That's what it means here, the love and the faith in Christ. It's about Timothy cultivating this loving attitude and spirit and trusting and relying on the Lord. We just got done talking about that in Sunday school in our fully equipped class. They're about, about how it's not up to us to take matters into our own hands. But we need to rely on the Lord. That's faith. We trust that God is the righteous judge. We trust that God will deal with things as they are. We don't have to take ownership of the world's problems. Not that we don't care about people. We do care about people, but we recognize that God is God. And we trust Him. Paul says that's what you have to do, Timothy. You hold fast to the truth, but you trust the Lord in it. This is, in a way, Paul's kind of encapsulating the whole Christian life in one picture. Like I said, these are big picture commands. So if you want to understand the, the Christian life as a whole, Paul says, it's simply this. Hold fast the pattern of sound words. Do it in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. That's living the Christian life. But then he continues in the next verse, verse 14, because he gives another command that kind of goes along in kind of a parallel to the first one. He says, guard the good deposit. That's not how it's translated in the New King James, but that's how I translate it in my own work. Guard the good deposit. The word deposit, the King James translators use good thing, that good thing which was committed to you. 
It's the same word that's used back in verse 12, where Paul says that God can be trusted to keep what I have committed to him until that day. What I have committed to him. It's the same thing as the, the good thing that has been committed to you. It's the same word used in a couple of different ways here. But in other words, this is a, a treasure. There's something of value. And Paul says, I can trust that the Lord is going to, going to preserve the treasure that I, can, that I entrust to him. In verse 12, I can commit myself to him and know that he's going to hold on to that treasure. And Paul says to Timothy now in verse 14, Timothy, you have received a treasure. Guard it. Keep it. Preserve it. Maintain it. You see, Paul's life and teaching are not just an example to follow. They are a treasure to be maintained and protected. This is another way of looking at the Christian life here. But notice how he says, how is Timothy going to, going to guard or keep that good thing? By, Paul says, the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Actually, I, I take that back. I, I misread that. He says, keep this, keep these good things by the Holy Spirit. Notice, he doesn't say who dwells in you, does he? What does he say? Who dwells in, what's he say? Us. Now, there's significance here. Paul is including himself in this. He is, all, why does he do that? I think the reason is this. Paul is already doing what he is telling Timothy to do here. Paul is already guarding the treasure. He is already holding fast to the pattern of sound words and, 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 and truth. Paul is already doing it. He's calling Timothy to join him. Timothy, it's not just something for you to do. The Spirit is in us, so we do this. We're going to see here that this is some, that throughout the passage that Paul is setting the example, but he is, he is inviting Timothy simply to join him in this mission and, and in following that same example. What's important for us to understand here from verse 14, when he, when he refers here to the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, is this, that Christ, the Christian life is not lived successfully apart from the Holy Spirit. You cannot live the Christian life without without the strength of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. It can't be done. You see, the Christian life is not an either-or. Either you do this or God does this. It's a both-and. And we are to follow the pattern by relying on Christ. He says it's the Spirit of God who is in you. That's how this is going to happen. See, the problem is when we look at the Christian life and when, people, when, when Christians think about how do I live as a Christian, how do, I, how do I do all of the things I'm called to do, how do I obey, how do I grow, how do I do all these things? Well, there's a couple of schools of thought. One school of thought says that you need to embrace the let go and let God mentality. You need to just stop trying altogether. Just sit back and let God do all the work. Right? You can just sit back and you can expect God to shape you into the pattern. 
And you just get to live a life of ease and comfort and God does everything and you just kind of sit back and watch Him work. Well, that's not the mentality. Now, the other side of the coin is when we just dismiss what God is doing altogether and we determine we're going to go and I'm going to take it by my own two hands and I'm going to make this Christian life work. And Paul says, guard it, keep it by the Holy Spirit. So there's a cooperative effort here. That's the real, the real New Testament method here, model of Christian life is not me working on my own, nor is it sitting back and watching the Holy Spirit work. No, it's by the Holy Spirit, you keep and guard this treasure. There is that cooperative effort empowered by the grace of God that we have in Christ. The Holy Spirit who dwells in you. This is the, this is the, 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 the force, if you will. I don't want to say that the Spirit is a force, the Spirit is a person, but this is the power that transforms us. How are we to be transformed from being corrupt and selfish sinners? Because that's what we are. How are we to be changed from being corrupt, corrupt and selfish sinners into being uh, loving and obedient servants? It's only by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. He's the power that changes But this grace, this power of the Holy Spirit operates in us as we set out to follow the pattern that has been laid down for us. We have the scriptures. We have what Paul and the rest of the apostles wrote. We have the record of their writings. We have the record of their actions. We can see their example. We can look at the model of Christ. We can see what he did and we can read what, is, what he taught. And we can learn these things and that is the pattern for us to follow. We do that actively engaging and following the pattern, keeping and guarding the treasure, all the while... Empowered by the Holy Spirit who is transforming us as we do this. It's not an either or. It's both. You've got to actively engage in, in following the pattern. You've got to take the truth of Scripture. You've got to see the, the, the pattern that's modeled for us in the Scriptures by the apostles. You've got to follow that pattern. You've got to determine to follow that pattern. Most of us aren't very good at making resolutions and sticking to them. But that's where it starts. We resolve to follow the pattern. We determine, I'm going to be obedient in this area. The scriptures tell me to do this. I'm going to do it. And we set forth to do it. Now, on our own, that's a failing proposition. But empowered by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, as we set about to do that, the Spirit then changes us. That's what the scripture is teaching here. Paul says, follow the pattern. Guard the deposit. The Holy Spirit is in you. So as you determine to do this, He is empowering you so that you can do this. This is what faithful discipleship, or what faithfulness is. Following the gospel pattern. Now, Paul is going to illustrate this to Timothy. What does this actually look like? In very practical terms. Notice what he says there in verse 15. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are phagellus and Hermogenes. I always love reading the names in the Bible. I make the kids do that when we do our Bible reading at home. It gets good practice for them, sounding out words. 
But these are two men that Paul mentions here, Phagellus and Hermogenes. They are completely unknown to us. This is the only place where their names occur in Scripture. We don't know anything else about them. But really, frankly, it's not necessary for us to know anything more about them. The one essential piece of information is that they defected at a crucial time. They were on the Paul bandwagon. They were, they were, were apparently, maybe they were elders in the church. Maybe they were, they were co-workers in some way. They, clearly, he singles these two out because he says, all of those in Asia have abandoned me, but especially these two, Phagellus and Hermogenes. These are men that Timothy would have known, clearly. Paul expected Timothy. And, and so somehow there's a connection here. These men were on the bandwagon, but Paul was arrested. He was thrown in prison. And when that happened, they decided, ah, you know what? This is maybe not worth the risk. It's just not worth the effort of seeking Paul out. It's not worth the effort. It's not worth the risk. I mean, if we go to help Paul, if we go to, to, to support Paul, what, what, are, what are the Romans going to think? What are the officials going to think? Are they going to think we're? Are they going to throw? We're going to end up in the prison cell right next to them. If we're not careful. Okay, I'm reading between the lines here, but that's what they're saying. And Paul says they 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 don't want to be associated with me. They don't want to be associated with a known felon, a man who is awaiting execution. They didn't want to have any association with him. That was a shameful thing. Now, does this mean that these two men were not actually Christians? Well, Paul doesn't say that. I'd be cautious about going to that, that far here. All he says is they turned away from him. He doesn't say they turned away from Christ. But Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel. So whether these men were Christians or not, their actions here do not speak well of their testimony. They profess to be Christians, but in this moment, when, when kind of crisis crunch time hits, they turn away. And Paul says, this is not, they were not alone. He says, all those in Asia turned away from him. Now, can that really mean all? I mean, I know we say all means all, but um, Timothy's in Asia. Timothy hasn't abandoned Paul. Onesiphorus is going to mention him in a minute. Onesiphorus didn't abandon Paul, but he was in Asia. So I don't think it literally means everyone, but you can imagine from Paul's perspective, it may have seemed like everyone. The vast majority abandoned him. Paul must have felt like he was being abandoned when he was arrested and all of these people scattered. Kind of makes you think at any given moment in time, how many people who claim to be Christians are just faking it? And then you add to that how many people are, are really are born again. They really are Christians but they're so immature or weak or they're, or they're dominated by some sin in their life that they too would turn away in this situation. You start thinking about that. What's really left? How many, how many people who call themselves Christians today would be left standing in that circumstance? Seems like it'd be a pretty small percentage. I don't know the number. I don't think I could put a number on it. When you start thinking about that, it can get kind of discouraging. I'm sure that Paul there, remember he's in, the, he's in the Mamertine prison there in Rome. That hole in the ground, dark, wet, cold. 
He's apparently chained by a single chain, which probably means he's chained to another person here. You think about that. In that situation, I'm sure that discouragement was a challenge for Paul. He's got to face that alone in that dungeon, realizing that all these people who said they were friends, who, who ministered with him, who said that they loved Christ more than anything, they've turned away from Paul because he won't stop preaching the gospel and he's now thrown in prison. And you could be discouraged by that. But Paul doesn't do that. In fact, Paul turns the focus from those who've fallen away to look at verse 16. He turns the focus to one who's been faithful. This is the demonstration of faithfulness. Onesiphorus, he talks here about, uh, he says, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. Who was this man, Onesiphorus? He was a man from Ephesus. He had gone to Rome. We don't know exactly the reason why. Paul says in, in verse 17 uh, that, that he arrived in Rome. So Onesiphorus traveled from Ephesus to Rome. Maybe he was on business. Maybe not. Maybe he only went there for this purpose, to seek out the Apostle Paul. What, what, we don't know why he's there for sure, but we know that when he was there, he sought Paul. It must have taken some time to find him. Now, prison, prisons then weren't quite like prisons today. They certainly didn't have computerized records. Uh, he didn't have, you know, a bill of rights, legal representation, you know, um, visiting hours, all that kind of stuff. You get to the city of Rome, how's he going to find Paul? Especially when the Christians, most of them don't want anything to do with Paul. How's he going to find Paul? So he begins to search, and, and apparently after some time of searching, he finds Paul sees Paul there in the dungeon chained to a guard, sees Paul there in this very, this very humiliating situation. What would you do in that moment when you finally find Paul and you see him there chained in this dungeon? Onesiphorus didn't turn away. That's really the emphasis here. Everybody else turned away. Onesiphorus saw Paul and instead of turning away, he stayed. He wasn't ashamed of Paul's chain. He wasn't ashamed of his imprisonment. He wasn't ashamed of the accusations that had been lodged against him. What an encouragement that must have been for Paul. To have one friend who didn't turn away. One friend who stayed loyal. One friend who ministered to him and was not ashamed of him. Now Paul says that this didn't happen just once. He says, he often refreshed me, which tells us that Onesiphorus must have visited Paul numerous times, spent a lot of time with him, not caring about his circumstances. This made a huge difference for Paul. The word refresh there means to bring a breath of fresh air. So he says, he refreshed me. He was like a breath of fresh air coming in to me, trapped in this dark prison. Let me just say something about the ministry of this man, Onesiphorus. Right? Onesiphorus did not go to Rome and start preaching. We don't have any record of that, any evidence of that. Paul doesn't talk about his preaching at all. He didn't hold evangelistic campaigns where thousands of people flocked to hear the gospel. He didn't do any public ministry as far as we know. There's no evidence here that he did anything publicly. 
Aren't, aren't those, though, when we think about ministry, those are the things we really think are most important, aren't they? The people who get up to preach, the people who can, who can you know, have a, a, a huge platform of ministry and they, they speak or they write or they preach and, and it really goes out and thousands of people listen to them. And, and we think that's really the important ministry. That's what happens in the local church. We tend to think that the ministry, the things that happen up here are the most important things in the church. But you understand, Onesiphorus didn't do those things. What kind of ministry did he do? Well, let me just put it very simply. He loved Paul. And he demonstrated that love by visiting him and refreshing him when everybody else was ashamed to do it. Sometimes we just need to go and visit someone. Be present. Accept them in whatever state they happen to be in without being ashamed to call them friend or sister or brother. That's the ministry of Onesiphorus here. And for Paul, this makes all the difference. Notice how Paul speaks of this. Right? What does he say there in verse 16? The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. In chapter 4, he's going to mention the household of Onesiphorus again. Presumably, his whole family was a part of the church in Ephesus. Paul says, he says, I hope, I want the Lord to show kindness to Onesiphorus and his family. In other words, to reward him. And then verse 18, he says it again, the Lord grant to him that he may find mercy or kindness from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. This was Onesiphorus' life, caring for other people. Again, we have no record of Onesiphorus ever preaching a sermon. What we do have record of is him going to Paul in prison and being with him and not turning away. Not being ashamed of him. Just going and spending time with him to encourage him. And Paul says, the reward for that is kindness from God. For his family, now. See, there's a present, he's saying, I, the Lord grant his family, his household, to experience God's goodness and his kindness. But then in that day, right, verse 18, he's looking to the future. What day? The day of judgment. The day when Onesiphorus is going to stand before the Lord and the Lord is going to say, what have you done in your life for me? And Onesiphorus is going to give account of his life as a steward. And he's going to say, you know what I did? I ministered to Paul when he was in prison. I went and I sat with him. Didn't take a lot of Bible study. Didn't have to go to Bible college to do that. Didn't have to go to seminary. Didn't have to have a great speaking voice. Didn't have to be able to sing. Didn't, all he did was he went and he sat with Paul. And Onesiphorus is going to stand before the Lord and he's going to say, I ministered to Paul. And Paul says that's what he's going to be rewarded for. See, that's where his reward is. Because he served by just loving and being faithful and not turning away when it was easy to turn away. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you can preach or teach or sing or whatever. The question is, can you be like Onesiphorus? Can you encourage someone? 
Can you just be a friend to them and love them even when it's difficult or when it's uncomfortable or even when it's awkward? Your reward will be from the Lord himself on that day. That's what Paul's focused on here. I think it's worth our paying attention to because we get our priorities mixed up and we think that somehow certain ministries are more important. And Paul here is highlighting a ministry that doesn't involve any expertise or skill. It's simply someone who loves enough to be present, to be a comfort, to bring refreshment to someone who is in need. This is the demonstration of faithfulness to serve God's saints unashamedly. Most of the Christians then in Asia had turned away from Paul. Things looked pretty dim. But Paul doesn't want Timothy to be discouraged by that either. Paul wants Timothy to recognize that, hey, in, in, in Onesiphorus, there's an example of someone who was faithful, of someone who stayed true. There are still godly men out there. You know, again, we may sometimes get the, the feel like Elijah. Remember Elijah when he ran away from Jezebel and she says, I'm going to kill you. And he runs out in the wilderness and he cries and says, God, I'm the only one left. Just be done with that. Take my life. It's over. And God says to him, it's not over. You don't know it, but I've got thousands of faithful people out there that have never bowed the knee to Baal. And in a way, Paul is kind of doing the same thing for Timothy. Yeah, Timothy, I know a lot of these people have abandoned me. A lot of people have turned away. A lot of people have, have failed to step up when their time came. But Timothy, there are still some faithful men out there. Men like Onesiphorus. Men who will stand firm in truth. Men who will love their brothers and sisters in Christ. And Timothy, you've got to discharge the mission. Faithfulness has to be discharged. It has to be completed, brought to completion. How are you going to finish the job? In order to do that, Timothy's going to have to find some of these faithful men. That's where he kind of moves on in chapter 2 here. The first verse reminds us really of what he's already said in verses 13 and 14. Paul says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's a really fascinating verse. Look at that verb for a second. Be strong. How can someone just be strong? We don't make someone strong by telling them to be strong, right? I mean, how do we get physically strong? You don't just tell someone, Levi, be strong. <laughs> Muscles appear. That'd be nice, but it doesn't work that way, does it? In order to be strong physically, what do you got to do? You got to exercise those muscles. You got to lift some weights. You got to be active. You got to get out there and do this work. And as you do that, you will grow in strength. See, it's something that we do. And then we build up our strength. But that's not what Paul says to him. Paul doesn't tell Timothy to do anything. He says, be strong. It's a passive verb, but it's a command. This is really one of those things that's kind of a difficult thing. How do we do something passively? How do we follow this command? But it's passive. Well, I think it's really exactly what Jesus was teaching in John 15. 
Right? You may be familiar with the, Jesus saying that, that he was the vine, he's the vine and we're the branches. And he says to his disciples there in John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus doesn't say go out and bear fruit. Jesus says abide in me and you will bear fruit. Sometimes we think that becoming a Christian, again, is all about self-discipline and hard work. And when we fall short, you know, we get tripped up by that besetting sin. We try and we fail again for what seems like the millionth time. We think the only solution to that is I got to try. I didn't try hard enough. I better get back to it and try harder next time. That's the key. But it's not the key. We've already noted that back in verse 14. You're going to do this by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Here he says, be strong. But it's not about trying harder, not getting on a gospel workout program. He says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Trust in Christ. Lean into him. Rely on him more. Commit yourself to Him more intentionally, more consistently. Lean into the Lord. It's His grace that will sustain you. It's His grace that will cause you to grow. It's His grace that will cause you to be strong. See, when Paul says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ, he's saying the same thing Jesus said. Abide in the vine. Depend on Him. Lean into Him. Reminded of what Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all of your ways and He will make your path straight. Living in this life as a Christian is about leaning into the Lord and His grace, depending on Him. We have to draw our strength from our relationship with Christ here. And Paul says, Timothy, you got to start with this. But then you got to finish this mission. You got to go out and you got to do the ministry. You got to fulfill your calling faithfully. In order to do that, Timothy is going to need to commit these truths, these very same truths that Paul has given to him. He's going to need to commit these to faithful men. Now you could draw a line from chapter 2, verse 2, back to verse 13 of chapter 1. Because there in, in verse 13 in chapter 1, Paul said, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. Here in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, The things you have heard from me among many witnesses. It's the same, same terminology he's using here in this verse. So it ties these two together. He says, Timothy, you got to look at that pattern of sound words. That pattern, that, that teaching, the doctrine you've been given, that teaching and instruction that you've give, been given and you've seen in me, Timothy, that's the pattern. That's what you've got to take. And you've got to commit that to faithful men. This is the practical, specific steps of obedience for Timothy. How is Timothy going to fulfill his ministry? He's going to take the teaching, that pattern that he received from Paul about the Christian life, and he's going to commit it 
to faithful men. Again, the word commit here is the same, or it's related to the word in verse 14. That good thing which was committed to you, uh, same word used again back in verse 12, what I have committed to him until that day. This is the idea that Paul is saying. It's give something to the keeping of or entrust something to. And Paul says, you're going to take this treasure, this pattern you've received, and you are going to then pass it on. You're going to entrust it to someone else. Paul says, in, a lot, in, in, in some ways, we could look at it this way. Paul has entrusted his doctrine, this pattern. He's entrusted it to Timothy. He's given it to Timothy. And he expects Timothy to find faithful men, men like Onesiphorus, and teach them the same principles. Show them how to live the Christian life. Entrust them with the responsibility of doing that. And notice... Not only do they have to be faithful themselves to it, but then they have to, they have to seek others that they can teach this to as well. You see, the mission of the Christian life is not complete until we have reproduced ourselves in others. Who are then reproducing themselves in still more disciples. This is faithfulness in ministry. It's reproducing... Whoops. Reproducing ourselves in the next generation. Think about for a minute how you became a Christian. How did you become a Christian? Did someone lead you to Christ? Who was it? In my case, with faithful parents who taught me God's word, they took me to church where I was instructed in the Word of God. They prayed for me. They prayed with me. They explained to me the way of salvation by trusting in Jesus Christ to save me from my sins. For you, maybe it was someone else. A lot of you here, I've heard your testimonies. I've heard about how it was that you heard the gospel, how it was that you were led to Christ. Some of those stories are kind of fun. You know, Vito and Peggy have a pretty good story about how God saved them. It's pretty, pretty fun to hear about what God did. Unlikely story, right? That God would save you. But he did. He sent someone to you to take the gospel to you. Mary's story is a lot of fun. In a church that didn't preach the gospel, he sent a gospel-preaching evangelist who wasn't supposed to preach the gospel, but he did anyways. And Mary heard it. I mean, go figure, but God did that. He saved her. Amazing. But think about that. God sent someone to you and he, he drew you to Christ and he saved you. And each one of us who was saved was led to Christ by someone. But then think about this more because it's not just becoming a Christian. Who discipled you? Who taught you the pattern? Who showed you how to live and led you and guided you to walk in the pattern? Maybe it was the same person or persons who led you to faith in the first place. Again, I, I think about my, my, own, my own experience, my parents, who faithfully taught and continue to this day to pray for each of their children and for our spouses and for our children, who continue even to this day to minister to us, to give instruction and wisdom and, and guidance in this pattern 
I can see this in my own life and experience. I can see what Paul's talking about. I can see my father and mother who taught me and instructed me in the pattern and then entrusted to me the responsibility of doing that myself with my own children as we continue on in this pattern. There was a a point in which I began to take the things that I had learned and I began to teach them to others. It's a natural process. It's, it's one in which every Christian ought to take part. You've received the pattern. You've been taught and instructed in, in the pattern. And all of us are working and striving to follow the pattern. None of us do that perfectly. None of us have arrived there. So we're still all in the, in the process of seeking to do that. But while we're doing that, we begin to take that truth and begin to pass that on to the next. We begin to to instruct someone else in what we have received. But what happens if one generation drops the ball? What happens if instead of entrusting these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, we just keep it to ourselves? I mean, it's a lot easier to just focus on yourself because we're all in process of trying to figure this stuff out, aren't we? We're all trying to grow. It's easier just to keep it to myself. Just focus on me and God. Just focus on my relationship. Just focus on what I'm supposed to do with Him. I'm going to focus on my sins and my struggles and, and just kind of really try to, try to deal with those things. Listen, working with other people is difficult. Working with other people is messy. It's complicated. And you start getting involved in other people's lives, trying to help them, trying to encourage them, trying to to pass that pattern on to them, trying to instruct them and follow in that pattern. That's not easy to do. A lot of hard work, a lot of mess. Of course, we know that God's plan is not going to be thwarted by our unfaithfulness. If we fail to do it, the mission doesn't stop. God... God will raise up somebody to do it, but we will be unfaithful. We won't be like Onesiphorus. Paul says Onesiphorus is going to have a reward waiting for him on that day. When he stands before the Lord, there's going to be a reward for him because he was faithful. We'll be like Phagellus and Hermogenes, proving to be disobedient, pulling back from the ministry to which God has called us. So today I ask you, are you willing to be faithful today by God's grace? Hold firmly the example of godliness in Christ that has been set by Paul and by Timothy and by faithful men and women down through the ages. Even those people who led you to Christ and have have taught you and have trained you and have discipled you. You're going to follow their example. Are we going to be strong in the grace that is in Christ? Are we going to reproduce ourselves and our faith in the next generation? Will you be faithful? Let me just say, because I need to mention this just before we close here, but the things that Paul has talked about, faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, the grace of God, the Holy Spirit, These things, Paul says, are in Christ. What that means is that if you are not in Christ, you can't have them. 
You don't get faith and love, the Holy Spirit, the grace of God. You don't get those things apart from Christ. So if you're not in Christ today, if you've not trusted in the Lord Jesus as your Savior, and you've not been born again, then you can't be faithful. And there is no reward awaiting for you. You are still under God's judgment. The only thing that you can do today is turn to the Lord, repent, and trust in Christ. Call out to him today in prayer. Ask him to save you from your sins. He will do that. He died for you so that he could save you. If you'll turn to him and trust him, then you will be in Christ and you will have access to all of these blessings that Paul's talking about here. Will you trust him today? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the example of men like Paul who were faithful even to death, willing to suffer execution rather than turn away from Christ, rather than, than close their mouth around the words of the gospel. And it wasn't just Paul, but Timothy was faithful. Onesiphorus was faithful. And for the, for the centuries of, of time that have gone from that day till now, there have been faithful men and faithful women who have courageously stood. Many of them, we don't know their name, and we will never know until we get to heaven. History doesn't record them. But you know their faithfulness. And Father, we stand today on their shoulders. We are the beneficiaries of their faithful obedience to you. Help us likewise to be committed to following their example, to being faithful to these truths. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us today that we might follow through and complete the ministry, complete the mission by reproducing ourselves and our faith in the lives of others. And Father, I pray that if there's someone this morning who is hearing this message and realizes that they have never trusted Christ, that they're still outside of Christ, they're still cut off from the grace that you have, the, the gift of salvation and eternal life, they're cut off from your spirit. Lord, I pray today they would feel very acutely the desperate situation they're in and realize that cut off from you, alienated from you, is to be cut off from life itself. Lord, I pray they would turn to you and cry out for mercy and forgiveness. That you would graciously pardon them and give them life. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.